Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Storybound. This week on the show, we're joined by Jason Diamond, who will be reading an excerpt from his essay collection, The Sprawl. Jason Diamond is the founder of the website Volume One Brooklyn, and he's worked as editor and writer at outlets such as Flavor Wire, Men's Journal, Rolling Stone, and InsideHook.com. He's also written for the New York Times, Outside, The Paris Review, Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, The Wall Street Journal, New Republic, Vice, Tablet, The All, Pitchfork, Mick Sweeney's NPR, and can you believe it, more. His memoir, Searching for John Hughes, was published in 2016, and his second book, The Sprawl, which he's reading from today, was just published in August 2020. The Sprawl is a collection of essays that digs into the history of the suburbs as a place where art happens. From the book's jacket. For decades, the suburbs have been where art happens, despite the conformity, the emptiness, the sameness. Time and again, the story is one of gems formed under pressure, and that resentment of the suburbs is the key ingredient for creative transcendence. But what if, contrary to that, the suburb has actually been an incubator for distinctly American art? The Sprawl was named Best Book of 2020 by the Chicago Tribune and NPR, and as you'll hear in this reading, it's a trip down memory lane for Jason, as well as for so many of us listeners. He'll also be joined by Xander Marsden for an original musical score. All right, let's start the show. This is Jason Diamond recording Chapter 4 of The Sprawl. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Jason Diamond read from his second book, The Sprawl, a collection of essays that digs into the history of the suburbs as a place where art happens. He'll be joined by musician Xander Marsden for an original musical score. Maybe the town sleeps, maybe I count sheep, maybe I get it. Maybe it's worth it, maybe I got it, maybe it's not around. New Jersey. New Jersey. Fortley, New Jersey. I was feeling a little somber as my friend Isaac and I ate hot dogs while sitting outside Hiram's in Fort Lee, New Jersey, on a sliver of land that fits over 35,000 citizens into less than three square miles atop the Palisades. I was thinking about the soul, the soul, the soul, and if when I pass on, I'll find out if there truly is such a thing, such a thing, and where mine might go, and where mine might go. Yes, food has moved me to get all kinds of emotional in the past, but this was something else. This was something else. A hot dog had never made me undertake some deep theological examination. Maybe it's worth it, maybe I got it, maybe it's not around. I've heard dozens of people from New Jersey tell me that while living in the state, whether they were from Princeton, Hoboken, Asbury Park, Trenton, Cherry Hill, or somewhere else, New York City felt like their backyard. That's the term they often use. One that always strikes me as funny since I pretty much gave up on having an actual backyard once I moved to Brooklyn, along with things like fireplaces, a garage, and a front lawn I could mow myself. The backyard wording is meant to signify that getting to the East Village was just a path train or car ride away. But the idea of Manhattan as the thing you see when you look out your back window is totally plausible if you live in Fort Lee. 
The big city is visible. It feels right there. One website said that the borough appears urban, but feels suburban. It was a nice summer day, not too hot. The second week of June was coming to an end and the sun was starting to make its slow descent. Isaac went to order us up deep fried Franks. As I sat waiting for him to come back, I pulled out my phone and did what I always do to kill time. I read up on the place I was visiting. Some of the stuff I knew, like how Fort Lee was the motion picture capital of America at the start of the 20th century. There was Fox Film, Metro Pictures, as well as Goldwyn Pictures before they merged with Louis B. Mayer to form Metro Goldwyn Mayer, and many others called Fort Lee home at one point. In a few seconds, I also learned that market researcher James Vicary flashed quick, almost unnoticeable messages like, drink, drink Coca-Cola, cola, and messages like, hungry, eat popcorn, across a local movie theater screen in 1957. The result was an 18.1% increase in Coca-Cola sales, cola sales, a 57.8% hike in popcorn sales, popcorn sales, and the start of Fort Lee being the home of subliminal advertising. What I didn't know, and might have learned if I'd paid attention during freshman history in high school, was that Thomas Paine wrote, or was at least inspired to write, The American Crisis, as he participated in General George Washington's retreat after the Battle of Fort Washington. Payne was talking about the retreat, which made its way up what's now Fort Lee's Main Street when he wrote, These are the times that try men's souls. Nearly 240 years later, on the fifth episode of the fifth season of his CNN television show Parts Unknown, famous chef, writer, and television personality Anthony Bourdain, who grew up 10 minutes away by car, talked about how he went to Hiram's to feed my soul. To feed my to feed soul. my soul. It was a holdover from his childhood that still made the guy who had eaten pretty much everything the world over happy. The reason Isaac and I had journeyed across the river to order two burgers, two chili dogs, two fries, and two bottles of Miller Highlight from this place that meant so much to somebody we both respected a great deal was because Bourdain had committed suicide a week earlier in France. We were mourning. The old eating when you feel sad trick. Hoping maybe his soul was still hanging around this little restaurant. The hot dogs and burgers were, unsurprisingly great. The fries were crispy, and the beer was cold. As my friend and I sat there quietly feeding ourselves with the sun going away, the mosquitoes coming out only to be replaced by chirping crickets, I did feel a connection to Bourdain. I went to the suburbs, and I fed my sad soul. Fed, fed, fed my sad soul. I can't say I knew Anthony Bourdain. I was lucky enough to talk to him only a few times. I also can't really say I uncovered much about him that wasn't already public knowledge. He told me during an interview he liked to write in the morning. That he grew up a comic book nerd, a fan of Mad Magazine and R. Crumb. Stuff that, as he called it, was really disturbed. Something really dark and filled with anxiety and anxiety and sex and violence. Said he grew up in the New Jersey suburbs with New York City just outside his window. Bourdain talked a lot about his suburban upbringing. He grew up in the town next to Fort Lee, Leona, 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 Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain, Bourdain, Leona. In a 2013 interview, he said, We were a pretty typical suburban family in most ways. I was a reader. I lived in a house filled with good books. Both parents loved movies. This was important. He wrote about his obsession with the John Cheever's short story and his film adaptation, The Swimmer, recalling that the place he grew up was a leafy green world filled with mysterious backyards, tree-lined streets, 
the sound of distant lawnmowers in the summer. Bourdain didn't ignore the suburbs on his travels or in his writing. He was very open about how much suburbia shaped him, and his belief that the suburbs were just like many other parts of the world. Still, that didn't prevent him from leaving for New York City. Almost all big-name chefs have to do that if they want to make it in the business. Julia Child, David Chang, Danny Meyer, Thomas Keller. Goes on and on. Bourdain has always interested me, because while he was famous after writing a memoir about working in kitchens, he was never really known or lauded for his cooking skills. His James Beard Awards came for his television shows, and he never owned a big-name restaurant of his own. Still, Bourdain drifted away from the suburbs in the 1970s, and he never looked back. He may have traveled the world twice, or maybe three times, but Manhattan was his home. The New Jersey suburb he grew up in had become the place he could maybe see from his window on a clear day. People in the food industry tend to be nomadic, moving where the work is, something Bourdain pointed out with pride. Child started in Pasadena, one of the many suburbs around Los Angeles, and ended up bringing French cooking to Americans. Keller started out washing pots and pans in a West Palm Beach yacht club before becoming possibly the most acclaimed chef in American history. Meyer grew up in the St. Louis suburb of Laud, Missouri, before founding a food empire that includes the Manhattan Staples, Union Square Cafe, and Gramercy Tavern, as well as the burger chain Shake Shack. Chang, the child of Korean immigrants, grew up in the Virginia suburbs before starting his Momofuku empire in New York. Chef Samin Nostrat, author and host of the book and television show Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, wrote, I grew up in Southern California, which is suburban, sterile, and super polished to Iranian immigrant parents. The point is, there's plenty of good food to be had in the American suburbs, but the cuisine that gets noticed is usually the stuff that's being prepared in cities. Suburbs exist that are destinations for just about anything, be it cuisine, art, music, architecture, media, museums, universities, or other cultural attractions, but they're a rarity. Instead, these things are concentrated in cities, so more often than not, People need to either leave the suburbs, or commute if they want to see an exhibition, be an editor at a publishing house, or try the hot new restaurant every influencer is talking about. Of course, that was sort of the whole point of what Bourdain did with his television shows. Sure, many of the episodes were titled using the name of a country or city, but he went beyond the city limits to small towns, to little remote villages, and yes, to the suburbs from time to time. But there's something else about Bourdain that goes beyond food. Something I picked up from him early on. Which I think is why I felt such a deep personal connection to him. For me, Bourdain was a suburban weirdo. Somebody who was born and raised in the suburbs but didn't quite fit in. He had a sort of boundless curiosity I feel as the product of a childhood in the suburbs. Of wanting to see beyond the horizon and to unearth things. He was the epitome of someone who just didn't fit in his normal home or on his normal street in his normal town the existential outsider. There are some people who end up in the city because it's where school or work is. But for others, it's something deeper than that. Getting out of the suburbs is simply of necessity. But what makes an outsider that way? And how do you define someone who doesn't fit in? Usually you think it's someone who behaves or looks different than the crowd, the black sheep or the misfit, the non-conformist. Medically speaking, 
Some doctors say the feeling of not belonging starts in childhood and can last throughout a person's lifetime. That people who are abandoned or otherwise marked as different early on carry that feeling as they grow up. Google, I feel like an outsider. And you'll find countless blog posts and articles from On Being the Outsider on psychologytoday.com to Six Signs You're an Outsider, an Outsider, and How to Make It Work for You. Typical scriptures for finding comfort when you feel like you just don't fit in. On the one hand, we're fascinated with the outsider. Preachers will tell you Jesus was one, Jane Eyre, Holden Caulfield, Harry Potter are outsiders in their own way. We're taught to think outside the box and be ourselves. On the other hand, feeling like you don't belong is a very real and deep experience. One that isn't always pleasant. Is it something people are born with, or does the world shape them? It's a very chicken or the egg deal. Nothing develops a sense of not belonging, like telling somebody they have to fit into a mold. As I drove through Fort Lee, I couldn't shake a familiar feeling. It was the area that shaped a young Bourdain and it called to mind the work of one of the most visionary writers of the last four decades. But it also reminded me of something I couldn't quite place. Maybe the town sleeps, maybe I count sheep, maybe I get it. Maybe it's worth it, maybe I got it, maybe it's not around. The wick is burning like it's in my head The tick's clicking like I'm already dead Don't you wish that you were always here? And wouldn't you know that I would always be there saying Saying Forgetting something but it's something so clear Playing games that just aren't fair saying already won Mine's melting like it's under the sun Fear confronts me at every turn Times I wish that I had never learned Saying Saying The only reason why I'm not allowed To keep the cheer all in the crowd Saying Maybe the town sleeps, maybe a cow sheep, maybe I get it. Maybe it's worth it, maybe I got it, maybe it's not around. Maybe the town sleeps, maybe a cow sheep, maybe I get it. Maybe it's worth it, maybe I got it, maybe it's not around.
episode was created from Xander Marsden's single, Town Sleep. And now for a short commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Jason Diamond and Xander Marsden. And now we return from our break. Gibson once described living in that suburb as like living on Mars with no grass and orange clay all around. I remember reading that and thinking about how much his suburban experience sounded like an old sci-fi story. In the 80s, Gibson introduced readers to a burgeoning strain of science fiction dubbed cyberpunk, a noirish computer and technology choked futurescape. Nearly 40 years after his groundbreaking 1984 novel Neuromancer, some would describe Gibson as a modern-day prophet. Set largely in the Boston-Atlanta metropolitan access, basically the bulk of the eastern seaboard, Neuromancer depicts a near future affected by war, environmental collapse, huge wealth gaps, dependence on the internet, and people looking for any way to dull the pain, from drugs to entertainment. The nickname for this area is The Sprawl, and it always struck me as a sad, lonely place. Gibson's vision influenced Bourdain. He describes the amazing sprawl of Tokyo in his book Kitchen Confidential as something out of William Gibson. Plan to build a food court influenced by cyberpunk literature and movies. Don't you wish that you were always here? And wouldn't you know that I would always be there, saying? And told the New York Times that while he typically avoided most science fiction, he read Gibson. I related to that because, even though I went through my own short-lived sci-fi phase as a kid, what really stuck with me and helped mold my views of the world from my teenage years to the present day was reading Gibson as well as stories by J.G. Ballard and Philip K. Dick and watching movies like Akira and Blade Runner. It's not around. I distinctly recall being around 15, sitting in the backseat of the car as we drove down some stretch of suburban road that never seemed to end, just miles of power lines, chain stores, and flashing lights everywhere, and thinking of Gibson's books. The orange of Home Depot gave way to the gray and blue of the Ford dealership, which gave way to a Toyota dealership, a used bottle lot, the honking of car horns mixed with whatever was playing on the radio as the soundtrack. I can tell you exactly where I was, but really, it could have been nearly anywhere in America. And as I got older, I realized it could have been on almost any continent as well. In my young, early 1990s mind, after I first read Neuromancer, and right before I had internet access and other opportunities to read about Gibson and his work, I concluded what I was passing was indeed the sprawl Gibson wrote about. And, 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 and now I'm moving to and part two of chapter six. Six. Chapter six. Jimmy had blonde hair, blue eyes, and freckles. 
He called every elder Mr. This or Mrs. That. He was a Cub Scout. He played Little League. He couldn't do anything on Sundays because his family went to church, but nobody ever talked about Jesus in his house and I never saw a cross anywhere. He had a common last name that could have been Smith or Jones, Anderson or Miller. It wasn't any of those, but you get the picture. He was a stereotypical all-American suburban white boy, the type everybody likes, the type other parents wish their child was more like. Jimmy was half Tom Sawyer and a young George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, always down for some mischief, but nothing too bad. He always had the best of intentions and always did the right thing. My friend fit the real-life version of an image that really developed with the proliferation of media throughout the 20th century. He could have been on the cover of some Truman-era issue of a magazine like Boy's Life in the Archie comics, or on an early television show like Leave it to Beaver or Dennis the Menace. You look at culture in the years following the Second World War, and you'll find Jimmy's everywhere. Parents trusted Jimmy, so when I told my dad I was going to ride bikes with him on some overcast day in the spring when I was 10, he didn't think twice. No questions were asked. I just went on my way and that was that. I remember the path from our home in Long Grove. We went down a small blacktop hill and passed three homes and a man-made pool. There was a bend in the road that led us to a small stretch of street that was canopied by trees. We'd ride that until we hit a busy road that had thin ribbons of sidewalk that weren't wide enough for us to take our bikes on. But nobody ever walked on them, so it didn't matter much. We'd get up just far enough, and I vividly remember the exact location in my mind. And Jimmy would stop and tell me we'd just ridden our bikes one whole mile. I'd watch the car zoom past and then look to my other side and see huge fields, the last remnants of Illinois prairie. The mile was usually the marker for us to turn around. Any farther was asking for trouble. That was normally how things went. But on that day, Jimmy grinned and asked if I wanted to see something weird. Deep down, I didn't. But I couldn't say no and disappoint my friend, so we kept riding. We rode past the golf course, and I don't know why, but as the rain started falling, I distinctly recall a solitary man on the course, putting on a green. As the rain kept falling harder and harder, we pressed on, down the terrifyingly named Robert Parker Coffin Road, named after a former village president, through the historic downtown area with its buildings from the 1800s when German farmers settled there and with the newer ones that were built to look like they were from that same period. We passed the Long Grove Covered Bridge, something you'd likely see driving in some quaint New England town out east, less so in our section of Illinois. I felt safe for a few minutes as the rain turned to mist. Then we hit another stretch of fields, then woods, and suddenly the dread came back. We kept pedaling up the road a little more, until finally Jimmy stopped his bike and did that thing kids do where they stand and pedal just a few pushes at a time, then glide around, then repeat. When he finally stopped, I pulled up next to him and asked what we were doing. We're going to see a haunted house, he said with a smile. The music you're hearing in this episode was created from Xander Marsden's single, Town Sleep. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Jason Diamond and Xander Marsden. And now for our final chapter. 
I remember thinking that cute little Jimmy with his messy hair and freckles was going to get us into trouble. I'll save you the dramatics. We didn't get in any trouble. What we did was ride our bikes around the subdivision called Country Club Estates, around the luxury homes built a decade prior, places that then cost over $100,000 when they were built in the late 70s. I specifically recall wondering if anybody lived in the houses because I didn't see a single person for at least 10 or 15 minutes until a guy in a Princeton sweatshirt jogged past us and waved. I asked what we were looking for. Jimmy pointed at a house and told me, with a hint of uncertainty in his voice, that it was the one. That was the haunted house. It was an unassuming two-floor Tudor revival. Three triangles jutted out over the roof, leading to an even bigger triangle gable roof over the garage. The house looked lifeless. We laid our bikes in the middle of the street, something we did regularly without fear of a car driving over them. We walked to the edge of the lawn, which looked as if it had been cut recently. Jimmy explained that a decade earlier, a school teacher killed her husband in that house, which was supposedly built, and I'm quoting Jimmy here, on an old German cemetery that was also an old Native American burial ground that was cursed. Mind you, I was in fourth grade, so all this seemed completely plausible in my scary stories to tell in the dark, addled mind. We stood there for a few minutes, taking it all in, wondering what ghosts and demons were swirling around in the house that looked like so many of the others. We didn't move until a man opened the front door slowly and yelled, Can I help you? It sent Jimmy and I scurrying to retrieve our bikes and hurry away, back to the safety of my home that, as far as I knew, wasn't haunted. My experience with the supposedly haunted house stuck with me well into adulthood for some reason or another. I remembered it very clearly because in a neighborhood where nothing was really ever supposed to happen, it felt exciting and scary and out of the ordinary enough that left a lasting impression. Even though I'd never heard anything else about a home filled with ghouls and ghosts in Longgrove, I was still curious to know if there was indeed a haunted home where the restless spirits of some murdered man still roamed. My investigation, which started with me googling Longgrove haunted house then Longgrove, Illinois murder, quickly uncovered that Jimmy wasn't totally wrong, although his story was your typical embellished suburban legend about a relatively new home being haunted. The part about the burial ground, to no surprise, was also false according to local historians I contacted. The home he pointed to, the Tudor, also wasn't the right house. What he was looking for was another home, one not too far from the Tudor, one that, on December 5th, 1977, Nola Jean Weaver rushed out of into the cold of a northern Illinois morning. At 1.30 a.m., the physical education teacher pounded at the door of her neighbors, the Goodfellows. When Cindy Goodfellow went to see what the commotion was, she saw Nola Jean Weaver wearing a nightgown and holding her nine-year-old daughter. Nola Jean was frantic. There's a fire! Call the fire department and the police! She screamed at Mrs. Goodfellow also saying that there were men still in the house and they had guns. After calling the police, Ms. Goodfellow looked out the window, but she didn't see a fire or men with guns. When the firefighters and police officers arrived, they made their way into the home using the sliding glass door Nola Jean left slightly open as she rushed out. The house was freezing, but as the authorities made their way around, 
Officers noted a burning smell coming from one of the bedrooms. When the police tried to open the door to the master bedroom, I found it hot to the touch. They summoned the firefighters who made it in by breaking in a bedroom window. Inside, as court records show, the bed was observed to be a glowing, smoldering object, which was extinguished with a handheld extinguisher and a stream of water from a one and a half inch fire hose. They put the fire out and found a body burned beyond recognition. As the Chicago Tribune reported, the teeth of the corpse glistened eerily from his blackened skull and would soon prove the body to be that of Larry Weaver, Nola Jean's husband. And he didn't burn the death. He'd been shot in the head. A 22 caliber copper-covered bullet was extracted from his skull, and the burns his body suffered occurred anywhere between one minute to one hour after his death. According to Nola Jean, her husband, after hearing some suspicious noises downstairs, told his wife to get his 22 caliber rifle and run away. They'd stay behind and protect the house. As Nola Jean was returning with the gun, she ran into the two men who snatched the gun from her. From Larry, they demanded money. Larry said he didn't have that sort of cash in the home, but could drive the burglars to a place where he'd get it. So he did that while one of the men sat with Nola Jean. When Larry and the other robber arrived back, one of the men took Larry upstairs. Nola Jean said she heard gunshots. The man who went upstairs with her husband came rushing down the stairs, and that's when she took off running with her daughter to the Goodfellow's house. That's what Nola Jean told the police. That it was a robbery that had turned into a murder. The neighbors confirmed they had seen a suspicious green pickup truck creeping slowly past the Weaver's house, which backed up the story. The poor young widow, everybody thought. But then the cracks started to appear. Investigators noticed the engine on Larry's car was cold. Nola Jean's was warm, indicating it had been driven, but there was no way the six-foot husband could have driven his wife's car in the position the seat was in. Then there was the matter of Larry's body. Why was it under the covers? And why did Nola Jean agree to a lie detector test, then decide not to go through with a second test after the first one proved inconclusive? There was also the matter of footprints. They found Nola Jean's, but no other sets, not from her husband or from the burglars. The police pieced together a different story, one that the widow wasn't telling them. Once they had their motive, that she was carrying on two affairs, one with her boss at the high school and the other with her brother-in-law, and discovered there had been violent fights between the couple in the weeks before Larry's murder, not to mention that there was a sizable insurance policy on Larry's life. You can guess where it went from there. Less than a year later, Nola Jean went on trial for the murder of her husband. On November 1st, 1978, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found her guilty. She was given a sentence of 40 to 60 years in prison. In an ironic twist, in the part of the Illinois suburbs that would become the center of lighthearted teen movie fame thanks to films like Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the judge that sentenced Weaver was Judge John Hughes. The Weaver murder was a blip on the national radar that came and went by the dawn of the new decade. A little over 10 years later, Pamela Smart, a high school media coordinator in the suburbs of New Hampshire, would convince her 15-year-old student and lover to kill her husband. The murder would inspire the book and its film adaptation, To Die For. 
But the Weaver case was largely forgotten, save for a few people who lived in Longgrove for when it happened. And the kids like Jimmy whose whispers about a haunted house in Country Club Estates helped keep Larry Weaver's ghost alive. This dark tale of murder in the affluent and supposedly safe suburb, a place where murders just didn't happen, where people were supposed to be happy and content, flipped things around. It pulled up the neat landscaping and showed there was something rotten under the surface. The more I read about the Weaver murder, the more I started to view the place I lived in through the lens of another movie I'd watched, with my film nerd roommate in college when I was 18, one that had a profound impact on me. David Lynch's Blue Velvet. And just like that, on the note of David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Thank you, Jason Diamond, for reading me for this episode. And also for all you listeners out there, go check out Jason's collection titled The Sprawl. You can find it in any of your local bookstores. Also, while you're at it, go on Spotify or any one of your musical apps. Look up Xander Marsden. That is spelled X-A-N-D-E-R. Xander Marsden. He did the music for this episode, and the song was titled Town Sleep. Thank you, Jeff Kilgore of The Syndicate, and thank you to Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Also, thank you to Jordan Aaron for production help. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Justin Alvarez of LitHub and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate. Next week, you'll be hearing Soraya McDonald. So make sure you subscribe. Find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryboundPod. Please subscribe, and we will see you this Tuesday. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.